0: Lives storied living is what I've called this session here. Um, about a year and a half ago, I was flying across the country from Washington to Los Angeles <clears throat> and I was to lead a session a few days later with the two people who had created the film Cars by Pixar Animation Studios. Uh, some years ago I got involved in a project that we've called the Wedgewood Circle. And it's an effort to put into the same room people who are artists and people who are investors and ask, could we invest in the culture together? Could we care about the way the world works out together? So if you can imagine, you know, people who make movies or who make music or who make plays or some of you more close to New York here, you know, Maka Fujimora is a part of this effort as well. And some people who, who, you know... Paint, paint as he does, how could we somehow enter into the gallery worlds of New York, the music studio worlds of Nashville, the, um, the filmmaking studios of, of, of LA, how would it be possible actually to, to think about a life together where we actually care about the way things turn out, whether than cursing the arts or cursing Hollywood or cursing Nashville or cursing New York, what would it be like to say, what about if we saw ourselves as responsible for how things work out here? We do this together not as an effort to make parochial art to make Christian hamburgers so to speak you know to make more Christian songs or Christian films or Christian paintings but how could we actually enter in to these public squares and do the very best work in film the very best work in theater the very best work in in song um, that's been the driving ambition behind the Wedgwood circle Wedgwood comes from Josiah Wedgwood who was a businessman who was a part of the William the Wilberforce community 200 years ago in England, this Clapham community of people who gave 30, 40 years of life to seeking the abolition of the slave trade. And after 10 years of Wilberforce as a member of parliament, walking into the parliament year by year, seeking to introduce a bill to abolish slavery, and every year being laughed out of the parliament, they rethought their strategy. And along the way, they came to conclude, in the language we now use in the Wedgwood Circle—that the culture is upstream from politics. If there is going to be a change in the political laws of England, there have to be a change in the culture of England first. Because you see, politicians at their best and worst are always finger-to-the-wind kind of people. Um, it happens in congresses, it happens in parliaments. With any kind of work between a people and a political entity, you know, if the members of parliament don't think the people really want this, of course they're not going to put their own lives and livelihoods and careers on the line. It just isn't how it works, actually. Um, so we began to think through together, inspired by Wil- Wilberforce and Wedgwood, who made a significant effort in their own day. Wilberforce rethinking the strategy with his friends, Wedgwood being a businessman who, if you have Wedgwood China uh, in your home at all, this is the family of Wedgwood, Josiah Wedgwood. And he created a plate as a part of this effort to address the culture Uh, We would call it rethinking, reweaving the social fabric of English life. Because you see, as long as slavery was not seen to be a problem economically, politically, socially to the English people, why would the part of it make a political decision to abolish it? It would cost them too much. It was the engine that drove the uh, British Empire, uh, candidly. Uh, And so they began to address, you know, all sorts of things. And Wedgwood introduced a plate. It's a Wedgwood blue plate. I have a copy in my office. With a slave in chains and the words over the top Am I not a man and a brother? And they sold the plates. They were not philanthropic offerings to the English people. They sold them. They sold little cameos of the slave in chains, would put them on their dresses or suits. And they began to be a conversation starter in English society. If you can imagine cutting through your roast beef and potato, you know, and all of a sudden having this question emerge off of the plate at you, am I not a man and a brother? Well, You see, among many other things, addressing child welfare reform, uh, chimney sweep reform, education reform, agricultural reform, all sorts of reform efforts to reweave the social fabric of English life. After years of doing this, but they took that phrase, you know, and pictured it on this plate which they sold to the English people and it began to be part of a, you know, a widespread effort over the course of time to rethink who human beings were, what responsibility to humans, one to to another, meant. And finally, there was the ability, some years later, to actually achieve the the political ambition, which was to change the law of the land. So inspired by that story of an artistic artifact created, uh, sold, merchandised, purchased, we created the Wedgwood Circle. The idea has been, you know, could we somehow, with Karen Goodwin's help, who was the person who brought Les Miserables to Broadway years ago, uh, she wrote this you know, Cameron Mackintosh person in London and said, can I come a- apprentice myself to you? And he said yes, and she walked you know, in his office eventually in London, and he gave her a brown paper parcel. with. She said, it's an obscure French novelist. Read it, please. See what we think about it. She read it, and, you know... Other things happened along the way, of course, but this became Les Mis. Um, and at first, of course, debuted on West End of London, then brought, she brought it to, to Broadway and she's a part of the Wedgwood Circle. Uh, the effort here is to somehow introduce artistic you know, products, plays, music, films, which actually enter into the public square, which are part of how we understand ourselves. Uh, this past year, You know, one of the most interesting new music groups which people are listening to all over America is a group called the Civil Wars. Uh, You know, you can't really walk around without hearing what they're doing. They're a new uh, Grammy-nominated duo, and they've been a part of this conversation. I mentioned the Fray earlier. They've been a part of this effort as well in the world of music. But a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago now, I was to lead at a Wedgwood gathering out in Santa Monica a morning conversation with these two people who were the storytellers for Pixar Animation Studios who were behind the story called Cars. I have no interest in NASCAR. That's not a good thing or a bad thing, it's just true of me. i uh, not much interested in animation, really. But I thought if I'm gonna lead the conversation with these two people, I probably ought to watch their movie first. So I downloaded it on iTunes and watched it across America that day as I was flying uh, uh, one coast to the other. I was so surprised. Um, what a good, good story it was. Do you know it? I mean, if you've got a three-year-old in your house, of course, you've probably watched it 500 times. Um, I've got a three-year-old friend whose name is Walker who actually sleeps with a little Lightning McQueen car in bed night by night, you know? Another little friend, you know, who lives on Capitol Hill and, and uh, you know, he's six now, but he's watched he would watch this film every day of his life if his mother said yes, he could do it, actually. Um, And you know what? I like it too. I think it's a great story. It's an amazing, surprising story. It's a story really about, you know, this person who's so full of himself in this Lightning Lightning McQueen world of NASCAR racing. He doesn't need anybody else, and he's sure of it, really. And he wins his, you know, races, and the big race happens, and it's this you know, tie at the very end, and they all three get invited to do one more race one one week later out in Los Angeles, and they travel in their big semi-trucks across America, and late in the night, Lightning McQueen is bumped out of his semi on the, you know, highways of the American Southwest and ends up in Radiator Springs, of all places, Um, and off Route 66 in an earlier day of American travel, you know, no longer the interstate, but You know, an earlier day, and it's kind of a lonely, off-the-road place, but it's called Radiator Springs. You can just imagine, really. And over the next several days, I won't go into the detail, and I won't show you, though I might love to show you, actually. But just to tell you, the next several days, what happens in Lightning McQueen's life is that he is transformed as he begins to understand something about the reality of the world in which he lives. What is the reality? That you see, as I was saying last night, about Wendell Berry's work. We don't flourish as human beings when we lose touch with people and place. We can't. It's something crucial to our humanity, actually. Crucial to who we are as human beings unless we see ourselves as in relationship to people and to place. Anonymity just doesn't work. I was in the Johnson Museum yesterday afternoon with Linda, who showed me a little bit of the campus life and its glories and we walked around a corner and all of a sudden i saw the geo committee bronze the walking man too there and i all of a sudden thought back to my master's thesis years ago when i was writing about philosophical anthropology and asking these questions what it means to be a human being and looking at various you know large streams of thinking and and remembering that in my thesis i actually had made part a point along the way of the relation between bob dylan's song thin man and the giacometti Bronze Walking Man. And if you know that famous piece in your local art museum here of this elongated, stretched out, lean, you know, all by himself, you know, uh, sculpture that Geo you did. Know, influenced by, but also an influencer of, Sartre along the way. And this sense that I'm lo- alone in the cosmos, I am lost in the cosmos, there's nobody else in the cosmos, a statement against any kind of nobility to the human condition because of course nothing is what it is. It's just nothing really. Um, And you can see, you know, incarnated in that own that that sculpture in your own local museum, you know, the antithesis to what really begins to be the story played out in Lightning McQueen and and cars. Where Lightning begins to hear from other people, cars as there are in this story, that in fact he is cared about. In fact, people are interested in him. They wonder about his life. They want him to flourish too. And he begins to find his own heart, his own conscience be tenderized by relationships with people who care about him. And he begins to rethink his own world. And I won't go through all the glories here, but finally the last race comes out in Los Angeles a few days later. And there are three cars racing, this brash, upstart kind of a racer who's just in it for himself alone. There's the granddaddy of the, of the racing uh, circuit who's in, in the story. There's his last race of his life, and then Lightning McQueen. And as a final turn is made on the big, long race, Lightning is in the front. He's going to win the race and win all the glory of the year. But he sees out his rearview mirror that this brash, upstart car pushes the granddaddy off of the track, and he tumbles over, and he's you know, off the, the race car track, and he's not, not going to compete anyway. And as the race line comes to its end, lightning screeches his wheels and backs up and pushes the granddaddy car across the line. He loses the race, of course, but he wins his own life. Ever heard that before by anybody? Well, you know, the storytellers for Pixar, these people that I interviewed the next next couple next day, are deeply committed Christian people. They're not people who are working for a company that is making Christian film. Their ambition is not to make a Christian hamburger. They're trying to be people who seek the flourishing of the city, offering their vocations for the common good, to the glory of God, trying to tell stories that are truthful about the human condition. As Walker Percy said, as I quoted him last night, bad books always lie. They lie most of all about the human condition. Bad animation movies always lie most of all about the human condition. What's been surprising, of course, in watching Pixar's successes over the last several years where they're judged to be the best storytellers in the world of film right now, the master storytellers, really. And why is it we're drawn into these stories as unusual as they are, as far away from us as they might be? Because story by story, we see ourselves in them, don't we? Strange as it might be, we see ourselves in them. And even if you're a three-year-old little boy, who just can't get enough of Lightning McQueen and wants to sleep with him night by night. Whether you're me, who's not three-year-old anymore at all, who thinks, good for you guys. That's an amazing, that's a well-told story. Because you see, my first question about a film was always, did you tell a good story? If you didn't tell a good story, I'm not really going to be interested. And the good story is what? Well, fundamentally, it tells the truth of the human condition. How about Friday Night Lights, switch Genres here a little bit here. Yeah? When I first heard about this a few years ago, I thought I'm not from West Texas, you know. I know I'm not really interested in this story. I, you think it's a well-told one, but I know probably it's not me actually. So I'm glad you like it. I finally watched an episode last fall. Uh, it's gone through five seasons. The seasons are all done now. Um, I don't offer it to you as anything, you know, that, that you know is by a Christian, for a Christian world, really. But you see, in this story about a little town in West Texas where the football team is the glory of the town's life and it's the drama of people and kids and adults and marriages and families and football games, that night by night, week by week, what's being told is a story of the glory and the shame of the human condition. As Francis Schaeffer used to argue, it's the the glorious ruin of the human condition. And you see, somehow, the best stories are always stories like that, aren't they? We're telling both sides of the story, the glory and the shame, the glorious ruin that you are and that I am. How about Downton Abbey, huh? If you are PBS watchers and you can't get enough and week by week you're just hoping that you can last another week because, you know, this masterpiece theater is going to offer you one more window into, you know, 1915 and 17 and British life and manor house living and, you know, the drama of upstairs and downstairs and this English life. Well, um. why is it that you like it when I say the name and you smile and you all I haven't seen but Some of you have actually seen it and you love the story. What is it you love about the story? What is it you love about the story? Why is it the story that so intrigues you? Why is it, in fact, you can't almost wait until the next Sunday night, or as my wife and I have done, we've now bought the series from Netflix, so we have to wait till Monday night. But I don't like to watch commercials at all, and I want to watch it at my own leisure, and so that's how we've done this, really. Um, but why is it? What is it about a story, whether it's Pixar stories or the Friday Night Lights story or the Downton Abbey story? What is it about stories that so draws you in, that draws me in? I know as a little boy listening to the Steve Froelichs of the world, you know, sitting in my little fifth-grade pew, and I would be messing around with my pencil and paper, and all of a sudden I had the sense that the pastor was going to tell a story. and I'd look up, and i like, okay, what's this going to be about now? Now I'm interested, really. Why is it, you know, when Jesus is interacting in this conversation with the expert in the law that I mentioned last night, they want to go back and forth. He wants to press him over, you know, the details of the of the Jewish law. And what have you got this down? And where did it come from? And what's it mean here? And can we abstract it here? And can, can we deconstruct it here? And Jesus says, no, but I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you a story, really. What is it about Shakespeare and that, you know, hard to take into your heart story of Hamlet, the prince that he was, and the murder of his father, and his own wrangling over his identity, and you know, what's it going to be for him in the world now that his father's been killed? And, and his uncle and his mother were behind all this. And, of course, whether it's reading the play in its own text version or seeing some film version of the play, and you find Hamlet at a certain point deciding that the play's the thing to catch the conscience of the king. And, of course, he invites the players to come in and instructs them with, make sure you have these words in the play because the play's the thing to catch the conscience of the king. I want to look at two points with you in the next few minutes. One is the question, is there a story that makes sense of my life and of life? Is there a story that makes sense of my life and of life? And then secondly, something I've simply called the story of all stories, the story of all stories. When I listen to Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, and the longer I watch Washington and the world and my own heart, I find that it's quite an intriguing reality that the tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As John Calvin puts it about Genesis 2 and 3, he says the great question that emerges out of that story is who will be the moral arbiter of the universe? or as I put it in my own terms, what are you going to do with what you know? Father Adam, Mother Eve, what are you going to do with what you know? Because you see, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's an epistemological temptation with a moral heart. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you see, there's no more perennial question that we as human beings have to ask and answer is than, what will you do with what you know? Now that you know what you know, what are you going to do? There's nothing that's more perennial, I would say there's no question more difficult to answer well than that question. And mostly we decide we can't. I won't. I don't see how it's possible, really. To do, what will I do with what I know? Well, I'm going to close my heart down because you see, if I open it up as it ought to be opened up, it will hurt me too much. And Romans 1, of course, is its own theological reflection on that reality, isn't it? that God in his own mercy and grace and sovereign purposes in history reveals so much of himself with such clarity and comprehensiveness that we as human beings are without excuse. And yet, and yet, we suppress that revelation, that knowledge in our own unrighteousness because we don't want to have to live with its implications. We don't want to have to live with its its meaning. Why? Why? Because in all sorts of convoluted, complex ways, like Calvin said, the great question in Genesis 3 was, who will be the moral arbiter of the universe? And you see, I want to be. I want to be. I want to be. I've put it like this in talking to countless 22-year-olds and 35-year-olds over the course of years, that moral commitment precedes epistemological insight. It may be a mouthful here for Saturday morning, really. But moral commitment precedes epistemological insight, that we, we think out of our hearts, we see out of our hearts, we live out of our hearts. Isn't it somehow I'm for, waiting for some great epistemological insight to be resolved before I can begin to follow God? I'll take questions that are serious questions until the cows come home. I have a lot of energy for that, frankly. I live my life doing that in some ways. But I'm always wondering... So where is your heart in all this? How is it that you want to live? And why is it, in fact, that the reality for you too will be that your heart is decided first? You've chosen how you want to live first. Let's try to get at that first, finally, okay? Because while it may seem to you that, in fact, you've read this book, which dissuades you of, and if only you get this resolved, then you would be. Well, the longer I've lived, the more sure I am that in that. It's always moral commitment first, So here it is in Genesis 2 and 3. What will you do with what you know? And as human beings, my own thesis is this, that over time we have answered that question in variations of the theme of stoicism and cynicism again and again and again. Think about it. Stoicism, cynicism, two sides of perhaps the same coin. But you see, they're both ways to protect our hearts from what we know. They're both ways to protect our hearts from the meaning of what we know. Both ways to protect our hearts from the implications of what we know. They allow us to say, yes, I know, and yet. Yes, I know, but. If the question for this weekend is, can you know the world and still love the world? Think about it in light of what stoicism and cynicism mean. Because they're both ways of saying, I don't think so. I really don't think so. It isn't that I don't know and yet, or but, or, but I won't go. I won't be part of, I won't get that close because you see, if I get that close, it will hurt me. And I will not be hurt. I won't go there. I won't be part of that. I've chosen in some of my own thinking of recent, and recently in some writing and, and about all this, to listen to two contemporary novelists who I think are very important windows into these centuries-long realities, of Stoicism and Cynicism. On the one hand, both are old, millennia-old schools of thinking, philosophers in previous generations and civilizations named themselves Stoics and Cynics. So in a sense, it's not a new thing because in some ways, of course, there's nothing new under the sun. But in our own world today, I would say that Tom Wolfe, the novelist, is a very, very important Stoic. And if you read his work, Capturing, as he does, the decades of American life over the last generation. The 70s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. And now his latest novel about the academy, the world of higher education. I am Charlotte Simmons, he names it. An 18-year-old girl who goes off to a Cornell University kind of a place, actually. Highly prestigious, highly prized. She gets in. She is sure she knows who she is. I am Charlotte Simmons, after all. And the whole book, really, is a story of her first year in college. And the question all throughout the book is, can she hold on? Who will she be at the end of the year? I am Charlotte Simmons, after all. And the question which is answered at the end is that she's really kind of lost her way, as so many obviously do. As I've read Tom Wolfe, even as I've talked to him a little bit in conversation, what I found Tom Wolfe saying is, when all said and done, you better be a Stoic because you don't want to get that close to what might hurt you in the world. You see, it is complex and it is wounding and it might be really wrong and you don't want to get that close to it even though it might be important to you and even though I might intellectually agree with you that Stoicism isn't the final answer. But in the end, when push comes to shove, for Tom Wolfe, it's always one more telling of the tale. Well, Stoicism is actually a better way to live in the world because you won't get hurt that way. Cynicism, we could choose other authors. I've chosen to think about John le Carre, the British novelist, who's made a career of writing about the Cold War and now, since that's done, the post-Cold War world of the globalizing political economy of the 21st century. And story by story are always the same story, whether it's The Constant Gardener or The Mission Song or you could pick your way any one of these stories which have become big sellers all around the world, really. But they're always one more version of the same story, aren't they? If you listen to him very carefully. It's always complexity that he writes about. It's always global, political, economic complexity. It's always a story of big governmental interests, big financial interests, and some great human need that gets crushed because human beings always get crushed. So grow up, okay? Don't imagine any other world than that. What's scary and sobering and maybe even instructive about his work is, you see, he knows the world so well. I've talked to friends in the last few months in, in my world of Washington who are a former, former congressman, a former CIA you know, director kind of a person, and a woman who is the senior VP for a global PR firm all people with very engaged lives in the world. I've asked them about Le Carre's thesis and his work. And without a f- blush, each person said to me, just like that, that's just the way it is, isn't it? That's just the way it is, isn't it? They're all lovers of God, each of these people. So you can imagine in my conversations with them, I've always asked them, is it? Is that just the way it is? Is it always just the way it is? And I ask, so what are you doing here anyway then? I mean, why are you still at this if that's just the way it is? But you see, when I hear them and I speak to you about this, dear brothers and sisters, I'm saying to you, we can't be romantic about all this. No. It is a fallen, fallen world. It is a wounded world, and so much of it is just not the way it ought to be. Last year, of course, you had Cornelius Plantica here who 's done some of the best work, even naming it by a book, not the way it 's supposed to be you see that 's not just theological you know creed to affirm you live that way, you live in that world, you have that life just as I do day after day, and you wake up and you go to bed and maybe with joy and on your heart trying to hold on to God and his word. You know, you live your life holding on, but you know all day long, all week long, you are bruised too by the brokenness of the world. So I don't dismiss either Wolf or Lacare easily. And we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that. Because you see, they're listening very carefully to how complex and wounded and fallen the world is. And they, like all of us, want to protect their, their hearts from being more hurt by that. That's just the way it is, but is it? Maybe 15 years ago, I was asked by a woman at the State Department. She was the China specialist at the State Department. She was not a political appointee. She was just there, whoever was in office. And she called me one day and she said, Steve, would you come to meet some people who are coming to Washington in a couple of weeks? They're, they're the Václav hovels of China, she called them. And I thought, really? Who are they, really? And she said, well, they were the Tiananmen Square leaders, and they're coming to Washington in a couple of weeks, and they, they want to talk to somebody. And I wonder if you'd come and talk with them. So I did. My wife and I went out to this home and outside of Washington one evening and entered into a living room with about 25 people in their 20s and 30s who all Chinese, all having a meal together, which we joined in with them. And we sat in a circle in the room, and talk for several hours after that. I don't know how it is for you, but I would guess maybe you're like me, that there are some nights of your life where you think, maybe you find months and years later, I will never walk away from that night. Because there were things that were said that I can never, ever forget. There were things that were said that I never want to forget, really. Because those words actually have shaped who I am. And that's clearly true of this night of my life. I heard words that night I've never, ever thought about. I heard stories of sorrow that were new to me, that were grievous, that were burdensome and weighty. These people with such visions and hopes for what might have happened out of Tiananmen Square, telling stories of the sorrow of holding their dear friends in their arms, bloodied and dying, after the tanks and machine guns came through that night. All of these people were people who found a way out of the square after it happened, spent a year or two literally crawling out of Beijing, out of China, finding their way to Columbia to do film studies, finding their way to being a journalist in Vancouver, British Columbia, finding their way to, you know, one young man gave me his card, his name and his, his, his phone number. China for the 21st century was how he, the card had it. He'd already done a PhD at Berkeley in the, those first five years, onto a second PhD at, at Harvard ambitious, visionary, hopeful for the future of China. And we talked for several hours that night about this one question. They said to me in various ways, you see, we love China. We love China. and We want to be part of China's future. That's our why we live our lives, to be part of the future of China, because we love China. They kept using the language, but you see, we love China. Even after having I mean, suffered as they'd suffered, You see, we love China. But we realize somehow, someday, to go back, we might suffer. We might be imprisoned. We might even be put to death. We are willing to do that, but we want a reason that makes sense of a choice like that. And we want to ask a question to you. We've been reading the philosophers of the world together, asking, do you have a good answer to this question? Is there a good reason to take up a life of responsibility for the future, suffering as we might? Does your vision of the world answer that question? And we've not found one yet that does. We wonder whether Christianity is different. Do you think it is? It would be a wonderful thing to do in some ways, Steve and Dave, just to kind of walk across the room here, break into little groups of three or four or five, and uh, have you all think that question through. Is Christianity different? Is it really different? Does he have a better answer to that question? I know in my hearing that I sat there thinking, oh, Steve, you have nothing to say to this, do you? But I eventually entered into the conversation with them, and I, I talked about a writer who I've learned a lot from. His name is Leslie Newbigin. Maybe you read his work. Uh, having spent 40 years in, Ingl- in India, he was a, a British uh, theologian pastor, I suppose. Um, with others, began the Church of South India in his years there. Um, came back into the West in his late 60s, I, I guess, and began to write books about the gospel in Western culture. A book called Foolishness to the Greeks was his first book. And then a book called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. And then a book called Proper Confidence. Uh, a book called Truth to Tell. All, bo- all these books exploring the question Does it still makes sense to speak of a gospel which claims to be true in a pluralizing world. That's still a meaningful conversation to have. You see, whether it's the work of InterVarsity here at Cornell, whether it's the work of Bethel Grove Church here you know, in, in Ithaca, my own reading is that unless people in these groups, campus ministries, congregations, are able to work their way through this question and a good answer for it, does it still make sense to speak of a gospel which is true in a pluralizing world? Then what are we doing, folks? I mean, why don't we just close the doors and, you know, go on to something else with our lives? If it isn't really true, in the face of the challenge of plur- a pluralizing world, then what are we about anyway? So, Newbegin gave his life to these questions, and he tells a story in uh, the Gospel and the Plural of Society about a long Hindu friend of his, a Hindu scholar. I once asked him, Who was this man? And he said, Well, we've been friends for 30 years, and we would not see each other sometimes, and then all of a sudden we would see each other again, and we'd be in a right back into the deepest of conversations. Maybe you have friends like that, too. You know. Where it's just like a kindred spirit where you just step right back into it. This was a Hindu scholar and Nubegan, the Christian missionary theologian. And he said that the Hindu scholar one day said to him, well, you know, finally, I've read your book, your holy book, your Bible. He said, you know, I, I don't know why when Christian missionaries came to India, they said, read this book, too. Add it to your supply. He says, I've now read your book, and it's a completely unique book, actually. It's unique at two important points, the Hindu scholar said. It's unique because it argues for a comprehensive vision of human history, a story that makes sense of all of life from beginning to end. But it also is unique here. It offers a picture of the human person, the human being, as a responsible actor in history. And, of course, the two go together, don't they? It's view of history and of the human condition. So in my response to this question, this weighty question from these Tiananmen leaders, is Christianity different? We talked about the Hindu scholar, about Nubrigan, about the gospel, about the story the Bible tells about history and the human condition. I mentioned last night that one of the surprises of my life was a few years ago being asked to speak at the Beijing Film Academy. I found myself thinking about that night years ago with these Tiananmen Square leaders who loved China who wanted to work for the future of China and being asked to come in then years later by the Chinese government, basically, and to speak into their film academy and their film world and their film students and the futures of the film students and their work as China's storytellers, but making this argument, in fact, that good stories shape good societies, and it cannot be otherwise than that. It cannot be otherwise than that. Is there a story that makes sense of my life and of all of life? I think there is actually, and I've simply named it here, the story of all stories. One of the questions which I've asked of some of these musicians and artists that I've known is, can you sing songs shaped by the truest truths of the universe, but in language the whole world can understand? So for somebody who's long loved Bono and U2's music, for example, I mean, what is it about what they've done musically, artistically? In some way, they've found a way to answer that question, haven't they? To sing songs shaped by the truest truths of the universe, but in language the whole world can understand. Again, the phenomena always intrigues me. Plastic cups of Coors raised overhead, singing the songs of Zion, thinking, this is my music too. How do you do this, Bono? How did you do this actually? Making us think this was our music. There's a song for me too, even though... Explicitly sometimes, always implicitly, it is a song of Zion. It's a song about the truest truths of the universe, which you see in language that the whole world can understand. What's lame Mis about, after all? Why is it that, in fact, it's sold out night by night by night by night, whether it's on Broadway in the West End of London, whether it's the theaters in Washington every few years, in your theaters here? I mean, why is it this story just captures us as it does, all over the face of the earth. I know when I think about it coming to Washington, when it comes in its odd moments, I think Billy Graham has come to town, hasn't he? It's a story of amazing grace one more time. Surprisingly, it is, really. Jean Valjean and Bishop Bienvenu and Javert, and these stories played out of the glory and the shame of the human condition. But a story always, 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 with this deepest of all threads, of an amazing grace being played out in the lives of people. And what is it, it happens when we watch this? We find ourselves drawn in, don't we? We want more of this. In the last year or two, there's been a British musical group that's a very different kind of music than U2 has done. They call themselves Mumford and Sons. Maybe you've listened to their music, but if you were a 20-year-old or a 25-year-old in America today, maybe in the world today, you would all, you would all know who Mumford and Sons is musically speaking. A very, very interesting group. Kind of an edgy sound. Always remarkably thoughtful lyrics. Um, There's a song called Sigh No More. It actually grows out of a Shakespeare line in As You Like It. Sigh No More. Um, But the song is about the meaning of love in this world. The meaning of love and how love might be. And in fact, even the line, a love as it ought to be, is part of the music of that song. A love as it ought to be. Don't we all long for love as it ought to be? When I hear them sing their songs, you know, I find myself drawn in one more time thinking, so what are you doing here, really? Because you see in a whatever world where it seems like the answer to every important question finally is whatever. Uh, you know, what are you doing, Mumford and Sons, offering us a view of life and of love as it ought to be, as it ought to be? Where's ought ought come from in this world in which we live, actually? Well, the story that I would call the story of all stories is a story that begins, actually, with the word ought. It's a story of the world that ought to be. And then it's a story in the next chapter of the world that is. Broken, wounded, unjust, evil, hurtful. But the next chapter tells a story of the world that that can be. It can be something other than that, actually. And sometimes it is. And then the final chapter of the story tells the story of the world that someday will be. We call this story the story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. It's a story that in some ways you could say is explicitly told in the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus himself asked about the meaning of marriage at one point, says to his interi- you know, those who were questioning him, well, what was it supposed to be like? What was this meant to be like in the beginning? Let's go back there to before the fall. You find Augustine, a four centuries later, explicitly naming this four chapter story in these words: "Passe picare, passe non picare, non passe non picare, passe non picare, non passe picare." Right? I'm not a Latin scholar, and probably you aren't either, really. But what Augustine was doing in naming these moments in redemptive history, passe non peccare, non passe peccare. It's, we are able to sin, we're able not to sin, is his reading of the human heart at creation. At the fall, not able not to sin. At redemption, able not to sin. At the consummation, not able to sin. And you see Augustine in his own vision of human life under the sun played out in the city of God and the confessions and commentaries upon commentaries of the Bible story. He explicitly many times and implicitly always is thinking about life in light of this story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, of ought, of is, of can, and will. I think like this. I live like this. I pray like this. Do you? You see, We need a good story that makes sense of the oughts of life, of an ought in life. And you see, to have a story like that is critical for a good life. I mentioned Wendell Berry a few times, and I'll just throw him your way again. In a surprising way that you might smile at, I work for the Mars Corporation some parts of my life. One of the other collegial partnerships we have in the Wash Institute is the Mars Corporation. We're not making M&Ms along with them, um, uh, nor are we making Skittles or Snickers or Dev ice cream bars or anything really. We are coming alongside them in some of their projects, uh, particularly a project by the work, group of the work, group of Catalyst, which is the think tank of Mars. It's headed by a Frenchman named Bruno Roche, who is a Huguenot Christian. He lives in Brussels, which is Mars's European headquarters. He is on the Nobel Prize Committee for Economics. He's a very, very thoughtful man who loves God and who's trying to be like Daniel. He actually sees Daniel as a figure in his life of a shaper of his own sense of vocation. And Bruno, some years ago, said to me over breakfast, he said, Steve, I don't think the financial paradigms that run the world are, are going to be sustainable. This may be more than you wanted on Saturday morning. There may be more than you want to really talk through here. Bruno's argument was this, about a year and a half before the financial markets imploded in the world. He said, if all we ask about a business is it increased shareholder profit that quarter, it isn't a big enough question to ask. He says, businesses need something more than that. A healthy economy requires more than that. I asked him, well, like what, Bruno? He said, well, 20 years ago in my own graduate work, I got enamored by this biblical vision of Jubilee. I've been thinking it through for all the years since then what does Jubilee look like? And he said, I've never been able really to work this out, but he said, you know, I'm still committed to trying to think through what an economics of mutuality might look like, was how he named this. And so we began talking and talking and talking. Over years we've been talking, and I've drawn him into things, and he's drawn me into things. And finally I said to Bruno, we need to go visit this man named Wendell Berry, I think, someday. He's been writing about this kind of view of economic well-being and community and society and the world for a long time. Let's go talk to him about this. And so we did a few summers ago. We flew down to Kentucky and spent a day on Barry's Farm just talking this through, this economics of mutuality, of of an economic vision which somehow had at its very heart the complexity of a more complex bottom line. A bottom line that honestly accounts for true profit because Mars is never going to be giving away M&Ms to anybody, I don't think. That's not the long-term ambition here. But it's also an economic vision that accounts for human beings, for people too, and for the environment, for the world, for the planet as well. So we what's called a triple bottom line, which is complex and isn't easily done, and it's really hard to work out. and a lot of arguments to be made because you see there's a lot of money at stake here. Mars is a $33 billion a year corporation. And there's nobody's fool here who's involved in these conversations. And in fact, if they can't find ways to actually keep the profit alive, all this stuff is just airy-fairy stuff. It's just sort of highfalutin and interesting theory is really how it would be relegated. So the harder question is, can we actually think this through in a way that makes financial sense to the Mars corporation? Barry asked us a question at the very end of the day. He said, you know, if you want to make money for a year, you're going to ask certain kinds of questions, aren't you? If you want to make money for a hundred years, you're going to ask other questions. I think that's a pretty good question to ask, actually. It's a good discernment to make. If the short term is your only interest here, you're going to ask certain questions. But if you want to make money over the long haul, you're going to have to ask other questions, aren't you? I had given Bruno an essay by Barry a year or two before. It was called Two Economies. And I won't tell you at length here, but I'll just give you a window into it. In this essay, Barry argues this. There are always two economies. There's an economy of Ithaca, New York. There's an economy of New York State. There's an economy of New York, New York. There's an economy of the eastern seaboard, perhaps. There's an economy of America. Barry calls these all lesser economies that create their own metrics. We will judge by ourselves what it is that, in fact, makes this workable. The metric makes sense. We'll be able to achieve its ends this year. And lesser economies are able to do that in a certain sense for a certain time. Barry argues, though, that there's always a greater economy in the world. Whether you like it, whether you name it, whether you choose it, prefer it, whether you want it, Barry's argument is there's always a, a greater economy, too. And his thesis is that the lesser economies have to play in the world of the greater economy, finally. Because he says there's a world that really is there whether you like it to be or not. Barry puts it like this in his essay. He says, in my, in my own world, it's the kingdom of God, but you can call it what you want to call it. Now, Barry is somebody who, again, is not a parochial writer particularly. People don't go to Christian bookstores to find his books, really. Um, but he's a writer who, in the language I've used, is singing the t- songs about the truest truths of the universe, but in language the whole world understands. So people are interested, some reject, some resist. I'm not arguing here that he is the final word on anything in the world. I think he's a thoughtful observer. He's a thoughtful critic. He's a thoughtful, you know, arguer about the way that life might be and and ought to be. But you see in his Two Economies essay, which Bruno would say now is the genesis, it's the founding idea behind our economics and mutuality project within Mars. It really is an argument, in fact, that, you know, there is a world that ought to be. There's a way that, that things ought to be done in the world for us to, be, to, to live in it rightly. Economically as well as very personally and privately. Publicly as well as personally. You see, that really is the comprehensive vision of God's kingdom, isn't it? It isn't only for the most personal responsibilities of life, it's for the most public relationships of life. And you see, if Jesus, as Kuiper put it, isn't in fact Lord over every square inch of the whole of reality, I'm not really very interested, actually, and you shouldn't be either. It's only a very narrow, privatized, compartmentalized life which, you know, your faith informs. Why? Why, really? It's a hard thing to work out, this business of faith in a pluralizing, secularizing, globalizing world. But you see, that is our vocation, and we need each other to do it, which is why this has been called an economics of mutuality. Implications for us? Well, maybe two here. In reading the Gospel of John, as I have tried to live in it for a long time of my life, I've stuck on certain passages in the course of this Gospel. And one of them is later on in the story where Jesus is contemplating moving towards his own death and the cross. And he's meeting with his disciples, and he decides to wash their feet. And as John tells this story, he says that he knew where he had come from and where he was going. And therefore, he was able to take off his cloak and begin to get on his knees and to wash the disciples' feet. He knew where he'd come from and where he was going. There's no commentary about it. Paul doesn't, you know, write a chapter or two in the book of Romans about it. It's simply the narrative of the life of Jesus. But think about it again. He knew where he'd come from and where he was going. You see, situated within this story, which is the scripture story of creation to consummation, Jesus knew where he'd come from and where he was going. And therefore, he was able to find his own vocation and with gladness and singleness of heart to give himself in service to his disciples. Lightning McQueen came to the same conclusion, didn't he? Not because Pixar was making a Christian story, but there were Christians actually telling the stories, finding a way to tell the, sing songs about the truest truths of the universe, but a language the whole world can understand. Even little three-year-old boys and five-year-old boys and, you know, guys as old as I am in the world who would think, it's a pretty good story, actually. What happens? Lightning McQueen decides, the fact, that it can't be just about him. In fact, he has some sense of who he is in the world. is able to make choices there on behalf of somebody else to do something else because, in fact, it isn't just about him after all. Maybe he had no- found his own way to where I had come from and where I'm going. In fact, I'm able to give myself away to the world. Sacrificially, in service with gladness and singleness of heart. A question for all of you good people. Can you sing songs that are shaped by the truest truths of the universe, but a language the whole world can understand? You see, at the heart of our own discipleship, the heart of our own vocations, as diverse as they are in this room, is this same calling, to be people who translate. It's the task of translation, which is our own common calling. You see, if we aren't able to be here Sunday by Sunday, if we aren't able to be part of the university work here at, at Cornell and the diverse ministries on campus as they are, and somehow come out of those week by week by week, more visioned, envisioned, more able, more skillful to do the work of translation, I think we're missing something here. We're missing something here. And that, of course, can be worked out whether we are butchers or bakers, or candlestick makers, whether we are professors, whether we are mothers or fathers at home with children, whether we operate shops that sell bagels and baguettes, whether we operate little places along the street that say, I'll take good care of your car today and next, tomorrow, too. You see, in all these different ways, really, we've got to find ways to to take these deepest things we believe to be true about God and the world and translate them into language the rest of the world can understand. Amen.